It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. On Commons People this week, Jeremy Corbyn gets put through the ringer. Wouldn't you like to take this opportunity tonight to apologise to the British Jewish community for what's happened. Boris Johnson keeps a low profile. Let's go for sensible, moderate, but tax-cutting, one-nation, conservative government. And the Lib Dems have a major rethink. Boris Johnson is on course to get a majority and Liberal Democrats are the best place oh, party you think, to stop You think him. that's what's happening if at you, the moment? If you, if you look at the polls right now, that is what they say now. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul Wall. Hi Arj. Hey Paul, we've got two good friends of the podcast. We've got the former Tory special advisor, Salma Shah. Hi Arj. Hey Salma. And we've got former Labour advisor, Matthew McGregor. Hello there. Hey Matthew. Hope everyone's good. Enjoying the election? Oh, surviving it, yeah. <laughs> when you said former Tory there, I thought you meant she's a former Tory. And I was thinking, is, is this a scoop we've got? You know, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's still a Tory, just the advisor part. Tory former special <laughs> advisor, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jeremy Corbyn has had a disastrous couple of days after an unprecedented intervention from the chief rabbi who criticised Labour's handling of anti-Semitism within its ranks. And it got worse for the Labour leader as he faced an interview with the BBC's Andrew Neil and refused to apologise to Jewish people. Let's have a listen. Wouldn't you like to take this opportunity tonight to apologise to the British Jewish community for what's happened? What I'll say to, is this. I am determined that our society will be safe for people of all faiths. I don't want anyone to be feeling insecure in our society. And our government will protect every community so against, no the, apology. Oh, against the abuse they receive on the streets, on the trains, or in any so other, no apology for in how any other form of life. And, try one more time. No, no hang apology. on a minute, Andrew. Paul, this was a pretty shocking interview. Is it game over for Corbyn? Uh, I don't. I wouldn't say it's game over. Look, we've still got time left in this election. You know, it's there's still days left, and Labour are desperately hoping they can somehow to use that awful phrase, shift the dial. This morning, I was at a press conference with Jeremy Corbyn, uh, where he tried to do that by unveiling this new secret document, as they were calling it, um, all about the NHS and trade talks with the US. Um, is it game over? Well, the game is looking, you know, we're getting towards, you know, the 90th minute, put it that way, and um, the chance of extra time to string out this metaphor don't look that likely. Um the problem, I think, for Corbyn is that he sounds just so defensive right now. He sounded defensive, ultra-defensive the whole of yesterday at the race launch and, crucially, at the in the Andrew Neil interview. And we've talked about this before. It's a sort of stubbornness. It's a, it's like the defensiveness comes across as, look, I'm, I know what your agenda is in the media. I know what you're going to ask me, and I'm not going to give you what you want. Instead of saying, actually, look, the simplest thing to do yesterday would to line up next to Alf Dubs and say, look... Uh, Alf's got a long record on this, and Alf's right. We should have done more. I'm really sorry about the fact that we didn't do more. We're going to try and do more. I do apologise for, for what this party as how it's perceived, and, and also what it's done, and and then just deal with it. But unfortunately, then 
tipped over into the Under Neil program. But the reason the Neil program, I think, mattered was because it wasn't just about anti-Semitism. It's about what would Jeremy Corbyn like, be like in number 10? And that's really the only question anyone really wants to know. And if you can't deal with a crisis within your own party over three years, how can you deal with a daily crisis 50 times worse than that in government and I think that's the problem we saw this in a focus group that we ran last week that people just aren't convinced it's about competence not necessarily even about his values it's about his competence and how, how proactive he is and I think that's a problem. Um, Matthew you work for Hope Not Hate what did you make of the interview? Uh, I, and the I chief mean, rabbi's comments. Uh, yeah I mean I, there, were, there were parts that it was hard to continue watching to be honest and I think it does speak to character as, as Paul said we ran focus groups over the summer so a little way back now but we asked voters um, uh, in four co- different focus groups about this topic and I wondered you know, to what extent has it broken through to what extent do people really understand anti-semitism in the context of race relations everything else and so on and so forth and across the board in every single group every no- every head around the room nodded when we are where we raised the issue, and in every single group, very similar comments were were raised, which is quite unusual to have across every single group. People didn't generally didn't think that Jeremy Corbyn was personally an anti-Semite, but in every single group, people said, "If he cares so much about this issue, why didn't he just nip it in the bud? Why didn't he act on it?" And it's that failure to deal with it that that raises questions for them about what he thinks and also his abilities to impose his will on the party and on and on government as well and i think you know people were were raising issues well maybe he didn't do it because it's his friends who are doing it maybe he didn't do it because he's just not really in charge but it, it it has broken through people do understand it and if labor didn't want to deal with this issue during this election campaign they should have dealt with it when it first raised in the first place um salma the tories have their own problem with racism with islamophobia uh, which has been well talked about. One of Labour's problems was that he didn't nip it in the bud early enough, this anti-Semitism issue. And the Tory Islamophobia thing has been going on for a bit less time. We saw your former boss, Sajid Javid, yesterday refusing to criticise Boris Johnson's comments about Muslim women. What do you think of how so, the Tory party are dealing with this? So this is very interesting because I think Paul hit it on the head, which is talking about defensiveness. And in an election campaign, you don't ever want to concede a point. And it's just this sort of strategic uh, stubbornness, basically, that we do not want to say sorry because it makes us look weak somehow. I think there's a lot of strength in saying sorry. I think a lot of people sort of, you know, look at their politicians and say, actually, totally reasonable, I'm conceding a point. Not wanting to sound partisan, but I genuinely believe this. I think the issue with anti-Semitism in the Labour Party is very different to what is being suggested about the Conservatives and Islamophobia. There are definitely structural differences about this. And, you know, the Tory line is you don't see Sajid Javid being hounded out of the Conservative Party in the same way that you've seen Jewish Labour MPs being hounded out. Nonetheless... I do think that this issue about the Boris Johnson article is a serious and significant one. Now, what Sajid Javid was saying is slightly lost um, in the furore of an election as well, which is actually Boris was making a liberal point in that argument. Women should have the right to choose to wear what they want. What I cannot agree with, this is a personal uh, view, is that When you are a person who has responsibility, whether it be as a member of the cabinet or as a a backbench MP, you are supposed to be representing people and it is incumbent on you to be responsible in your language. 
he took a journalese approach to that article, which is fine. He's writing for the Telegraph. But can you have both things? Can you be both things? Can you sort of have that sort of journalistic gusto and write about women who look like letterboxes, which, you know, we can all talk about the right to cause offence or not. Can you do that whilst you're supposed to be someone who is responsible and representative? And for me personally, I would like to see Boris Johnson apologise for the use of the language. I don't at all question the liberal point that he was trying to make. And I happen to agree with that. And I think that's what Sajid Javid was trying to say, because we wouldn't we wouldn't think twice about the, allowing women to have freedom in, in what to wear. It's the tone. And it's the tone for everybody in Westminster at the moment, you know, to suck it up and say sorry, both of them. Yeah, I mean, I think the the issue with with Boris Johnson is that he has a, a there's a there's a pattern of using of playing fast and loose with with racist language uh, that, that is troubling to a lot of people. But on the issue of the difference between Labour and the Conservatives, I think that's exactly right. The issue of Islamophobia in the Conservative Party is different in the Labour Party. I think in the Labour Party you've got a small number of people who are engaging in quite extreme forms of uh, anti-Semitism, abuse, harassment, uh, denialism that, that amounts to anti-Semitic behaviour. On the conservative side, we have, there aren't as many examples of that. I think there are councillors and activists who have been uh, exposed as using uh, racist language towards Muslims. But what you do have in the Conservative Party is quite widespread uh, 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 views that are Islamophobic. We polled uh, Conservative Party members last summer and a massive proportion of Conservative Party members believe Islamophobic lies about Sharia no-go zones, for example. So I think there is a there is a different uh, challenge to confront within the Conservative Party. I, I totally agree with that. But the, the, the downgrading of the inquiry that was promised during the leadership, uh, inquiry, uh, leadership contest I think is really troubling because unless the Conservative Party does start to confront those views... They will continue to fester and it, the problem will get worse. Um, just to widen it out, Paul, what kind of conversation is going on in Labour at the moment? The polls aren't, they're narrowing a bit, but they're not really narrowing. Well, I, I think, uh, and I'm old fashioned about this, but I think that even over the next week or so, I suspect Labour's support will tick up a bit. Um, um, now, that's just a gut feeling. I've got any no real evidence for it, but it tends to happen. I suspect the Lib Dem uh, dissent will continue. They'll get a bit more squeezed. And and you might end up where Labour's on something like 34%. Okay, Now, it's nowhere near as good as 39%, and it, but it's better than Miliband. Um, and... But the problem they've then got is that the Tories may well get more than 40 and then get a majority. And so as even though Labour might be making up a bit of ground, you're in an, an election after nearly 10 years of a Tory-led administration. If you're only getting a maximum of 34%, there's something deeply wrong. And I think the people around Corbyn, I, th- uh, I think there is beginning to be a sense of panic. I think you saw that in the WASPy announcement at the weekend. Um, I mean, I wrote about it overnight, but a little notice fact, we were briefed by very, very senior people um, during the Labour manifesto launch that WASPy stuff would not be likely before polling day. Two days later, they have a £56 billion announcement. And if you're if you're doing that, I mean, these guys know what it's like when you're running an election campaign and you're doing a manifesto, suddenly to do the massive thing that tears up your fiscal rule you've just talked about, um, to try and get a few votes because you got hammered on question time, 
looks dreadful. And again, it comes back to the point, what would you be like in government? If you're doing that in opposition election campaign, what are you going to be like in government? You know, you suddenly panic. Oh, I'm suddenly going to go off to, to John McDonnell in the Treasury and he's going to fine me $56 billion for something. That's a problem that's just arisen. It doesn't look remotely competent or credible. And I think that's the real problem. Can I say this? Actually, I, Matthew, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but one of the things that I've noticed, and I was quite long serving as a special advisor in government and worked for the Tories sort of prior to that, is how much there is a real blurring between the way people think about campaigns and the way that they think about government. So you are saying that there is the clear distinction. I think actually the two things have started to come much closer together and it really does damage actually your ability to function as a government because you still sit in this campaign mentality and it, it's, I, I just think it's a, it's a striking thing and I think it's a recent phenomenon. Maybe. But the problem is, why do we have manifestos? We have manifestos uh, because credible parties want to hand over to the civil service the day one, here's a oven ready, to use that phrase, oven ready detailed proposal that you and the civil service can go away and work up. That's why they exist. They're not there, they're there obviously a contract with the people, but they're there really, they've got a proper function. They exist for a reason. And if you are coming in with half-baked plans, the civil service is going to say, well, sorry, Prime Minister, what, what can we do with this? Yeah. yeah, I think that's totally right. I promise I'm not trying to make a partisan point by going over to the Conservatives, but the thinness of their manifesto. Ooh, can we, we'll get onto that in, oh, yeah, in sorry, a minute, if that's sorry, okay. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you'll get your that. time, yeah, Matthew. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, you know, without straying onto that, I, I do think that is, that, that is a They've become an electoral problem. tool. Exactly. And the problem, I think, for... The, um, the parties in the media is there isn't really that much of an electoral consequence for that um, uh, f- for that problem. Like voters are not taking that kind of stuff as seriously. Therefore, politicians don't need to take it as seriously. Therefore, you know the media don't get the kind of hit out of that kind of. I mean, fifty six billion pounds without having costings would have been, I mean, it's a severe this election, but in previous elections, it would have been the thing that people wrote in the history books on page one. Yeah, I just want to ask you too, because you've both got experience of election campaigns and the interview last night felt like one of those big wow moments that is a really significant moment that will be remembered from this campaign. Can you guys remember any from your time working on campaigns? Oh God, I'm so jaded. I sort of try and blank it out, everything out of my memory. <laughs> Do you know, funnily enough, the, the 2010 election campaign always sits in my mind because that felt like it was a bit more fresh and, and new and different. Um 2017, more recently, the nothing has changed line from Theresa May. I mean, that was we amazing. Were all... And the way she said it. The way I'm she not going to do it. the impression. Salman's got her hands on her head. About... We were all, yeah. This, yeah. I mean, we all had our, our heads in our hands because we could see it. We were like, what? No, why? <laughs> and that comes back to the defensiveness point. Yeah, she was always. ultra defensive. So she came across as angry and, you know, it just blurted out the world's worst. But you have to remember. Bite. I mean, politicians are human at the end of the day. And I think actually... Even, even the Maybot malfunction, yeah. But, but apparatchiks forget this sometimes. Um, that actually, they are human and they do have those reactions. And we ask a lot of them, especially in election campaigns, we ask them to go out and actually be robots. You know, <laughs> go and say the line, go and do this, look this way, stand this way. Um, you know, people don't like it when you do that. You know, they're focus grouped within an inch of their life. And that, I think that's why people probably like Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson, because they look like a breath of fresh air. They look like they don't respond to the rules in the same way. And, you know, good or bad, it is a reaction to how people feel. I think one of the one of the issues with the format last night um, was with the format last night. I mean, I think 
Jeremy Corbyn is quite a personal uh, character. He's good with everyday people in those kind of settings. I think, to me, watching that interview last night, he looked overprepared. He looked like he was trying to stick to lines. Uh, I, th- I think that was partly about the, the lack of apology over anti-Semitism. Mm. He's apologised before. Mm. He apologised today. The he lack of apology today last night, uh, it was it was uh, very strange and it just looked a little bit like you need to be strong, we need to, you know, and kind of overloading people. I mean, I personally have done this before for politicians I've worked for. You overload them before an interview and it, and it, and it goes goes very very badly wrong i learned quite early to say nothing yeah. uh, for the last hour or so just because you just fill people's heads up and they are absolutely humorous, bang on i think that's right you know what's interesting though is that everyone's forgetting andrew neil grilled jeremy corbyn and theresa may two years ago and and the andrew neil interview with corbyn two years ago wasn't too bad Neil had loads of facts and figures. He had loads of stuff about the IRA. And Corbyn was in a different mindset. He, he, was, he was much more relaxed. He wasn't as defensive. And he was really quite polite. And he did what he pulled off last week, actually, in the ITV debate and in the BBC debate. He sounded quite reasonable and not ruffled and had a bit of sense of humour. With Andrew Neil, obviously, he had a very bad day that race launch. He was late to it. That It was in his head. And he just sat there and he looked like he was crossing his arms. And, and I thought... From the word go, this is going to go badly. Obviously, uh, Boris Johnson's on this evening, and like uh, after a very bad first inning in a in a cricket match, needs to see what the other team do in there. Well, let's see. <laughs> if, if it might be next week, not this evening. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. If at all. Speaking of Boris Johnson, uh, in the meantime, while all this has been going on with Labour, he has launched an incredibly low-key, low-risk Tory manifesto and has barely appeared in the media since. He did, however, send out Nicky Morgan, who's quitting Parliament at this election, to defend his slightly dodgy 50,000 more nurses announcement. Let's have a listen. We know that trust in Boris Johnson is very low. We know when he did a debate recently and it came up as a question, everybody laughed at the idea he could be trustworthy. When he leads a manifesto that the flagship policy in it is there going to be 50,000 more nurses? Yeah. And now you as the culture secretary, a member of that cabinet, a member of the government, admit that 19,000 of them already are NHS nurses. Viewers at home go, well, this is complete nonsense. But there will be 50... There are other ways that nurses come in to the NHS. They will be overall... And this is, we're very, very clear on this. 50,000 more nurses, if you look in 10 years' time, than there are no, today. I know you keep saying and that. And in terms of the trust I know you keep issue, saying that, but 19,000 of them are existing NHS nurses. Do you see the problem? Paul, you were at the manifesto launch. What, what did you make of it? Telford. What a place, eh? <laughs> I mean, it's quite... I've not been to Telford since I was a kid for Colbrookdale and all this. Every, you know. Everyone who went and keeps saying, that's the first reaction is, oh, Telford. But, I mean, Telford, is, it's a strange place. It's basically like a classic new town, out of town, loads of big sort of modern buildings, uh, and it sort of seems quite disjointed, but it's a classic Labour Tory marginal. I can see exactly why um, they chose it. I mean, I remember David Wright was the Labour MP, who, if you forget, Get, we actually got into a bit of Twitter trouble for denying something on Twitter way back in the midst of time. Um, and it's a, it's a tight marginal, but it's a big leave area. And you can imagine that that message, the main message of that thing when we were all sitting in the hall was Johnson riffing on getting Brexit done. And everything else seemed like a detail, including almost the 50,000 NHS nurses, more nurses. And he, they trumpeted this. And in the briefing afterwards, um, I've just been talking about how badly prepared some of these manifestos are boy the Tory one not as only is it thin on the headline announcement of 50,000 more nurses we're sitting in a briefing room afterwards with people from number 10 and you'd think expect them to have decent amount of competence 
then suddenly confessed, actually, yeah, the bulk of these numbers will come from retaining nurses already in the NHS. And we think, what? And we all looked at each other and we think, this is your headline announcement and you haven't even got that nailed down. And that, again, looked like a bit of panic, looked like a bit of last minute stuff. Oh, God, we haven't got really anything in the locker. Let's talk about the NHS. And, and so let's come up with this this new figure for nurses. And that's what it felt like. It felt like a little bit of sticking plaster. And I was depressed because I thought, Christ, we've just had the Labour manifesto, which has got massive holes in it. We've got the Tory manifesto, with lots of sort of flam in it and not much in it. And you think, where were the public being served? Yeah, you came up to me in despair yesterday. I man. really did. Do, do, you think, do you think this nurses thing came out because Boris let slip the tax cuts Boris announcement by, by accident? Yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think it was that. Mr no, Johnson to you. They're, they're, I think they always... Look, it's quite clever if you're if you're Johnson, of course the main messages in this campaign have got just two messages: get Brexit done and more money for the NHS. It is the replay of 2016, after all, in the Vote Leave campaign, and they're very effective. My point is that if you're going to do the NHS bit, at least come up with something credible, at least come up with something that's sort of plausible, and that's why I was just. I think that, by the but there's thing. a classic issue for the Tories on the NHS, which is nobody ever truly believes us on the NHS it doesn't matter you know Theresa May gave a 20 billion cash injection to the NHS and it sort of did nothing in terms of changing the Tory credibility on it imagine if she'd done that before the 2017 election though Yes, this is true. So I, I also slightly would argue that it's not a replay of 2016, it's a replay of 2017 um, in terms of the election strategy. And people want to talk about the NHS because it is something that you're supposed to do. NHS tick, you know, economic credibility tick, something about education tick. And I think probably Tory strategists, and I don't disagree with what you say about, you know, people wanting to have a little bit more of a vision and feel like they're making a positive choice about, you know, whoever they're going to vote for. Um but I think actually, if you're a Tory strategist and that manifesto is gone, you'd be like, Phew, that was fine. That was okay. Oh, yeah. But it's incredibly thin, isn't it? I, I don't think I've seen a Tory manifesto this I've thin never seen before. one that's in. The thing for me about this uh, Tory manifesto is it, it's a, a very much in line with how Boris Johnson does election campaigns. I worked for the Labour Party in 2008. Uh, for Boris Johnson's first mayoral run, and uh, for the other side, we will point out, listener, <laughs> yeah, they uh, they had very very little to say. I mean, the entire campaign was, "I'm going to get rid of bendy buses." Yeah, and he had um, a little pledge card, didn't he, as well? A right? little pledge card, but with very very. I mean, it was very it, again. It was very very thin, and he makes himself a very very big character outside of election time and then in election campaigns he makes himself as small a target as he possibly can and just tries to dance his way through without taking too many hits so they they kind of built up all of the momentum before election campaign and now they're trying to coast through quietly the thing for me about the manifesto that I, the 50,000 nurses thing that I didn't really get is why not just say 30,000 yeah. to, to a voter 30,000, 50,000 that's a lot of nurses either way and it's more than labour and, and that's the point right yeah. so I don't really understand what, what it is in the decision making process that, that led them to say we can probably get away with this don't worry about it they look a bit embarrassed I, I, well. I was talking to someone in the Tory party this week who said you know what it's great that we're arguing about 50,000 yeah. nurses because it, people just hear loads of nurses and it keeps actually keeps the story going could it be deliberate? Sure. I'm not sure about that. The, the thing for I, I think that's a good line for somebody who's got caught out doing something a bit goofy. But I actually think that there is a bit of a problem for for the Conservatives in the sense that 
view, view uh, voters um, sense of the parties on on health on the Tory side and tax on Labour side isn't really about the specifics. It's not really about this number of nurses or it takes me two days waiting list. It's about values. People don't really believe that the Tories in their heart of hearts genuinely believe in the NHS in the same way that people don't really believe in their heart of hearts that Labour wants to cut taxes. Mm-hmm. So it, it is really about the bigger values question. So for the Conservatives to come out and say something that is clearly palpable nonsense about the NHS reinforces that sense of they're not really they're not really into that as an issue and I think that is a bit of a problem for them. And it's the same with the hospital building. I mean, you've got a perfectly good plan to build six new hospitals, right? So why go on about 40? Why undermine the main brilliance of actual real cash we're committing it and then waffle on about seed funding for 40 more because you owe yourself to this charge again that you've you've you're you're dissembling and it's the same with the nurses. Just say we're going to have 31,000 not 50,000 and there's somewhat this is I think it's a lack of experience in number 10 just as a lack of experience in, in Corbyn's HQ you've got people there Manira Mirza who Matthew may or may not recall was one of the policy advisors for Boris Johnson at City Hall suddenly she's catapulted into number 10 to write a manifesto she wrote the manifesto and to formulate most of the policy and she clearly from that briefing I have to say doesn't have much of a clue and then that's why I'm depressed about this I, I expect I, I'm so old to remember the Blair Brown days where you you road tested to death over two years a policy you costed it you went out to your pals in the city you went out which yeah, like Paul, Corbyn doesn't like you, we don't you, that, you road that time does not exist so yes you're absolutely right there is an institutional deficiency in terms of experience and that's not down to any individual you're you know people have been catapulted into these positions and I kind of feel sorry for them because they're doing their best in a really challenging I don't environment feel sorry for them at all well, it's your journalist <laughs> it's not your job to feel sorry for them <laughs> but I will say this think about this time scale Think about, you know, from the point at which uh, Boris Johnson became leader to a point at which a manifesto needed to be delivered to to go to the country in an election. He's been planning a leadership run for more than a year. Yeah, I know, but it doesn't mean that he's planned a manifesto, is it? I mean, you've got to get through. But can I also just say, on the point of the manifesto, yes, it's thinner than Tory manifestos. But look at the opposite of of a Labour chunky manifesto that literally promises you the earth. And actually, okay, apart from free broadband, I'm, I can't, and nationalising stuff, you know, what else has Labour got on offer? So there, there, a, there are yeah. downsides to both ways of, of doing it, but there are upsides to both ways of doing it as well. It's like a Christmas wish list, kids' wish list that's going on the fridge and it just lasts forever and ever. It was just, you know, a very, very long piece of paper. And, and that's the thing. I mean, I, but let me throw this on you. I mean, Boris was obviously ramming home Brexit at this manifesto launch. What I'm amazed by is that Labour, and Corbyn didn't do this last night either, Labour does have a case to make for its referendum. And its refer- and the case is this. If you want Brexit delivered, right, to, to leave voters, if you want Brexit, sorry, not delivered, but sorted one way or the other, Labour's got a better policy. Why? Because actually, if you're a lever... We're going to guarantee a very simple, soft Brexit that is dead easy to implement and it's going to be there literally within six months. If you vote Tory, you're not going to get a trade deal sorted out until probably years in the future. And you're going to be in this never-ending situation where you're not going to get real Brexit at all. You're not going to leave, properly leave, because you won't have a trade deal. Why doesn't Labour say the Tory plan is one for dither and delay? Labour's is one for action. I don't understand why they're not making that case. 
I mean, because I think you I can make think, that I case. Don't, I don't you think you can make that case. I think you can. Because I, I think in the voters' head, you've had three years and then the Corbyn message is actually, we're going to do what Cameron did and it feels like resetting the clock right the way back to essentially 2015. And it does feel, I think this is why actually the dither and delay message is quite strong because people are totally exasperated. And essentially it's saying, here we've got another opportunity to go right back to the start, and it's just but it's not. not it's just saying, look, here's an off the peg solution. It's called the customs union. Let's have it, and, and you can have it really quickly. Whereas if you have Boris Johnson's things, you're not going to get it really quickly. You might have a no deal. Your job will be at risk, and Labour's just not talking about it. Does does it maybe come down to the fact which, which we've talked about it on here before that that actually voters out there they just care about getting out and the date rather than the details. It might be that. Yeah, the how. It's not about the how, it's the when. I think there's there's part of that. People want it to just go away, even on the Remain side. And I think that probably goes for most of us as well. I think I'm I'm also surprised by Labour's approach on Brexit. From a slightly different perspective, I'm surprised they haven't gone harder at the deal itself. Because I think people do want to get it done, but people also don't want bad things to happen voters do you know even voters that want to leave even voters that are fed up of the whole thing are worried about a recession are worried about economic um, uh, consequences Um, they're not as worried it's not as it's not as strong as the kind of get brexit done deal but the the point of campaigns like this is is an opportunity to change public opinion as well as ride it and i think that i'm I'm surprised that 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 labor hasn't talked more about you know fewer rights at work less money for the nhs fewer jobs that that it might you might want brexit but this brexit is bad i think that they've left it to one side because they want to focus so much on the NHS and other bread and butter issues, but also partly because it's been a very, very traumatic debate within the Labour Party for the last year. And I think there's an element of Labour wants its own internal Brexit deal uh, discussion done as well. Yeah, well, that's true. Although, with hindsight, I bet you there's quite a few Labour MPs, as much as they know all their party members are saying, look, let's go for a referendum. Privately, quite a lot of them surely now think, God, if only we just stuck to saying we're going to accept the Brexit result. We're not going to go down the second referendum route. Just imagine how different this election campaign would have been. Labour accepts Brexit. It just wants a softer version of it, a jobs Brexit. It doesn't question the idea that we're leaving. And then it can focus on austerity. It can focus on the NHS. I think more and more the penny might drop with a few Labour MPs. I might be wrong. I might be wrong. The last time I was on this podcast, I did say I've never understood why Labour actually didn't just vote Theresa May's deal through. Mm. It was the the real sensible strategic choice for them. Yeah. They don't listen to Sama. Uh, I, I maybe mean, they should on. hire me. <laughs> their, their withdrawal agreement will look exactly the same as Theresa May's deal. Their withdrawal agreement with They're a slightly different that. political decor. Anyway, um, onto a party with a completely different Brexit policy, the Lib Dems. Uh, the leader, Joe Swinton, <laughs> has been forced to pivot away from her strategy of running to be Prime Minister amid stagnant poll ratings and a bruising question time encounter. The Lib Dems are now encouraging people to back them to stop the Tories getting a majority. Let's have a listen to Swinton. Liberal Democrats are in a position where we can win seats from the Conservatives. So to anyone that is concerned about a Boris Johnson majority government, about the hard Brexit deal that he has cooked up, that Nigel Farage is supporting, that could end up in a no-deal Brexit, the way to stop Boris Johnson is to vote Liberal Democrat because it's the Lib Dems that are going to win seats from the Conservatives. Paul, what, what do you make of the Lib Dems in this campaign? 
Well, it's really, really interesting. You can't blame them for having this, what they call a bicep kissing strategy, which we've talked about before, which is they... That is a new one on me. Yeah. I've got to tell you. <laughs> that, that's what it's called. Third but mention it, on it's what it's called internally. Seriously. <laughs> which, and the whole point was have, have Joe Swinson look like you know, the big I am, saying, look, I can be prime minister. Faces on all these bosses, all these leaflets everyone's got. And they were seriously thinking, the more you talk about being credible prime minister the more people start believing it that was their point and more people could start thinking not third place but first place in these seats that was their strategy i get that and i get that after the trauma again of uh, talking about previous traumas trauma of of nick uh, nick clegg and tim farron particularly in 2017 what a disastrous campaign those two were you can see why they wanted something different they thought that Revoke was a way of injecting some sort of adrenaline into their their system as well as this leadership so there's two things they've got Joe Swinton's PM and Revoke. They're the big things they've got in this election. They're the only things that even politicos remember. Forget the rest of the detail of the manifesto. Uh, how much of that gets through to the public, I don't know. Those two big things look like errors now. Um, and I think it's dawned on them that actually maybe a policy of saying, look, we're a break, we're the best chance of a break on Boris Johnson in a hung parliament, um, being more realistic about that was, was maybe always a better option. But it's not as easy to sell. I mean... I think the revoke position has been absolutely catastrophic for them. I think it it looks um, uh, dishonest because it's predicated on them winning a majority, which is just not a credible uh, uh, thing for them to suggest. It it forces them to sort of argue this sort of very convoluted way in which it's democratically acceptable to do that. And I think that's just um, not worked at all. But I do think that they they should have seen that coming all along. Sometimes you make errors in elections based on some interesting data, some good analysis, lots of research. Sometimes you you just you just make a massive stuff up, and I think that's the case here. I was with Gordon Brown uh, for an event on the the day after they announced their revoke policy, and Name he was drop. A, yeah, I, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm a big 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 fan, and 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 I mean he he's a lot smarter than I am, and he uh, uh, gave a, a speech about why. He sort of dissected it in that very sort of like clunking fist kind of way that, that Gordon can do. And I came away from that meeting thinking the Lib Dems are in real trouble in this election because I think it, it just doesn't pass a smell test. It doesn't pass the ready for government test. Yeah. I think it's incredibly hard to campaign on once it, it sort of doesn't meet um, contact with the voter. And that's the feedback that's coming through the polls. It's the feedback that's coming through from the, from the doorstep. And I don't see any way out from, from underneath it for them because it's central to their entire election campaign. And it means that they're going to inevitably, logically, have to become the rejoin party once we leave. Yeah, and, exactly. And that is, uh, what a millstone. What a millstone to carry on your neck. We've had Jo Swinton on this podcast talk about it, yeah. and she kind of talked round it, but it's clear that she basically made a case for saying why they might end up as being the rejoin party. Um, and you think, really? But fundamentally... Actually, the thing that is the worst about the Lib Dems in this scenario is that it feels so disingenuous. And, you know, given what happened with the Ming Coalition and the tuition fees, they couldn't afford, you know, in a brand sense, to be the party that you couldn't quite trust again. And I think they've misunderstood their own position. And this is very true of lots of uh, political strategists at the moment. They're actually not uh, looking at the reality of their own position. And they're just trying to read what they think a certain clutch of voters wants to hook onto them without understanding that there is a certain perception of them out there. And it's the, it's the one thing that you actually really do have to understand in politics is what do people really think about us? 
Um, because there's no point in just sort of magically assuming that, you know, everybody who wants to remain is just going to go with you because you've said revoke. I think vote, voters have phenomenally good BS detectors, um, if I can use that phrase. Um, they can see through that stuff. I think quite often strategists in particular are a certain breed and they, they're they too clever by half. Mm. People can see that this is a nonsense. People can see that Lib Dems aren't going to get a majority. They can see that without a majority, just revoking without a referendum is an outrage. Even Remainers um, uh, don't want that to happen. I think it's a, an absolute blunder. I think it's also really unfair for Jo Swinson, who I worked with very, very briefly. I can't claim to know her at all when we were in DCMS in the in the coalition days. But she, you know, she was always very competent. She was very hardworking. And I have a lot of respect for mothers, particularly, who do that job. Um, and she put herself out there. But she hasn't had any time to really embed as a leader either. Mm, that's true. Um, and I've said this before, and it sounds incredibly sexist. And it, and it is. But this is, this is definitely something other people have said, too. It's that she doesn't have that gravitas. And it's slightly in the voice, you know, the, the softness of it. Um, and she's kind of like in this very aggressive fight between these two titans of, of Johnson and Corbyn trying to make this mark and she just she looks slightly diminished as a consequence because you know she hasn't odd, had though, that time Nicola Sturgeon somehow pulls it off yeah she's got gravitas she, she, she's to the point she's just a better politician let's be honest she's been around a lot longer she's been around a lot, lot longer um, she learnt uh, at the heel of, of Alex Salmon as well, well the knee yeah. of Alex Salmon and she quite rightly didn't well, anyway there's an English on that but um, <laughs> <laughs> I'd no more chat about Alex Salmon no, okay, not, not sorry. touching Alex Salmon but I, I, I do think the interesting the thing is, you know, we're always saying that actually the classic thing in politics is to fight the last campaign, just like the dodgy generals fight the last war. And the, for them, the Lib Dems, the last campaign was only in the summer. It was mm. a brilliant success on the Euros. And that they, 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 they're sniffing the glue from that election, <laughs> basically. They really are. Um, they've kind of ditched the revoke thing now and... and admitted that it's not going to happen because they're not going to win a majority. Can you guys... Uh, how hard is it to do something that's that kind of central to your uh, it's, it's nigh on impossible because th- it's completely embedded in people's understanding. And so now they're clambering. And it might give them a little bit of, of heft to say, oh, deny Boris's majority. But even then, what's the electoral impact? They split um, the left vote, essentially. So, yeah, they might gain vote share. But does that mean anything in terms of seats? Looking unlikely. I think this so-called pivot is really proof of how bad the the policy is is going. To make a change this late, Linton Crosby says you can't fatten a pig on market day. To try and uh, land any new arguments uh, with with voters out there is incredibly hard at, at this point in the campaign. And for them to pivot to please deny Boris a, a Johnson a, a majority, I think is is it makes them sound uh, weaker. Weak, yeah. I do think that that is also a problem for the the Labour Party, and it's a it's a boon to Boris Johnson. Uh, the Labour Party is relying on the Lib Dems being able to take back some of the seats in in the, the southwest and um, uh, parts of that country. And I think uh, the uh, failure of the SNP to um, really uh, put the Tories under pressure in Scotland is is, is another uh, problem for the Labour Party. Um, I mean, for the opposition as, as a whole. But I think I do think the Lib Dems not making uh, progress is is one of the main reasons why Johnson looks looks on course at the moment. Yeah, I think um, actually 
the Lib Dem was always the unknown factor and because the campaign has actually gone so badly. Now we know. We know. <laughs> that actually, it was that was always the risk for a, a hard um, message on get Brexit done is that you unite the Leave vote by diminishing the Brexit party, but then you leave this flank exposed on the centrist side and actually the collapse of the Lib Dems sort of means that Johnson's kind of gained of a whole ground. The Brexit party have helped in diminishing themselves as well. So and I do think ultimately we things. keep saying this, but I keep sounding like I'm broken record, but I do think Remainer Tories ask the, have to ask them, what are you going to do in this election? And I think almost all of them are going to stick with the Tories. You know, the Lib Dem fantasy was that they were going to switch in big numbers to them. and It's not our natural home. You know, like I, I voted Remain, um, campaigned for Remain. I totally understood that when the Brexit um, you know, referendum happened and we were going to vote out, actually, we do kind of need to follow through on this. So that whole Lib Dem revocation thing, that was not enticing us over because it just didn't seem credible. Yeah, no one wants to be part of this kind of elitist metropolitan revoke Brexit set, do they? But anyway, it's quiz time. Yeah, uh, no. it's, it's all on political was interviews. I wasn't. You were all right last time. <laughs> Uh, last words. Right, just just buzz in. Well, just shout the answer. So uh, I'm just going to turn my computer away from I'm not the poll so he doesn't look at the answers. And I'm going to turn Matt's mic off. You are with the quiz poll. <laughs> <laughs> Who did John Humphreys criticise in 2008 for wearing a stab-proof jacket as they toured their constituency? Harriet Harman. Correct. Well done. One Brilliant. I was too young to remember that. <laughs> <laughs> They're all relatively... No, that's very good. I was going to say, hey, twenty first century. Right. Which former prime minister asked? Well, then prime. Mm, don't know. Which former prime minister asked for an interview on gay rights to be halted and restarted in twenty ten? David Ooh. Cameron. Yes. Do you remember it? I don't remember that. Wow. Uh, that's interesting. Or did I just give the answer away in my question? No, you didn't <laughs> give the answer away. It's, I, I don't actually remember it, but I remember that that was. Right. Something that came up. Yeah, yeah he, he struggled to explain why his MEPs refused to support a motion condemning a homophobic right. law in Lithuania. Was that an Attitude magazine? I think it was with a gay magazine, but it was on Channel 4 as well. Right. Oh, OK. Um, yeah, he asked for it to be stopped and turned into a press interview because he just <laughs> couldn't answer the questions, essentially. And then they just put that out. <laughs> <laughs> so it's one all between Matthew and Salma. Uh, Andrew Maher was one strongly criticised over an interview he did with a Prime Minister at a party conference. Who was the PM and why? Was it was it Gordon Brown? Yes. Was this the one that Mandelson went bananas over? Um, I can't remember now. There's something that Mandelson went bananas with Maher over a Gordon interview. I can't remember what the detail was. Does anyone want to have a go at the detail? Mm, there must have been... 2009 party conference. What was it? That whole year is a bit of a blur for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, OK, I'll tell you. He asked Gordon Brown whether he used prescription drugs to get through. Uh, oh. Of course. That was it. What was the context behind that? Because it was a little bit before my time. Uh, it was because there was this... I think Guido Fawkes actually yeah. pushed it around on, yeah. online about that Gordon basically had a problem um, that he had to deal with with drugs. Um, and, you know, it was not necessarily anger management or autism or something, but it was it was in that sort of dodgy territory. And uh, What was Gordon Brown's response? I 
can't remember actually. I think he did it. Gordon just sidestepped it. I think he just sidestepped it, but there was a lot. I remember now there was a lot of anger over it because it was it was such a scurrilous. Yeah, it just sounded like Ma was doing Guido's work for him basically, and I think that's it's a hard really, thing for the BBC. I to, do remember Mandelson going bananas and saying, "What what what are you doing?" Interesting. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for. That's this one week. each. Yeah. Well, oh, it's a draw. Just yes, say three scores on the doors. A three-way draw. Yes. Unlike this general election. It's a three-way draw. Yeah. <laughs> You're the Lib Dems in this. <laughs> I think I could sue for libel. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me. And make sure you've subscribed to Commons People on all the usual channels so you can catch us every Wednesday during the election and Thursday normally. Be sure to get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone or follow the link in the episode notes. Before we go, let's just have a listen to the SNP's candidate for Ochil and South Persia having a bit of a spinal tap moment on the campaign trail. Please trust me with your vote on December the 12th. As you know, only the Scottish National Party can beat the Tories here in Eastern Bartonshire. And with all due respect to my Lib and with all due respect to my Lib Dem and Labour colleagues here, the other parties like for fine. I will work hard for you. I will always listen and I will let you down. Thank you. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 